0: Uh, We begin a new sermon series today. My sermon today is titled, Victory Through Love, Beholding the Lamb of God. Uh, As a way of introduction, I want to take us back to the beginning of the Bible, the book of Genesis. I've decided to read through the book of the Bible in a year. I don't often do that. It's it's a little challenging, I must admit, if you lose a couple days and all of a sudden it builds up, but I've decided to do that, so obviously we're, I started reading uh, this year in Genesis, and I want to tell a story uh, from the book of Genesis, which many of you are familiar with, you've heard it many, many times, but listen to it again, because I'm convinced as you hear it again, and as we preach um, through, the, book of Re- through uh, the letter to the church in Ephesus in Revelation, I think, I think Genesis... Specifically, Genesis uh, chapters 1 through 3 is going to take on some new meaning for you. At least that's my hope. So in the beginning, God created this wonderful garden. It was paradise. It was his temple on earth, perfect in every way. And he created two trees in the garden, the tree of life and the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, among all kinds of other trees, fruit-bearing trees. He created man and woman in his image, Adam and Eve. And they had perfect intimacy with each other and with God. And God said to Adam and Eve, you can eat of any of the fruit of any of the trees in the garden, which obviously included the tree of life. So think about this for a second. Adam and Eve were able to dine on the fruit of the tree of life in paradise, in the garden of Eden. Eden. The tree of life, the power source of God for all of life, endless creativity, endless intimacy with God. And as they dined on the fruit of that tree, they were literally ingesting the life of God into their body. It's it's an amazing thing to think of. Now, God said, you can eat of all these trees, but there's one tree that I don't want you to, to eat from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. If you eat of this tree, you will die. And then the story, as you know, if you've read it, and many of us have read it over and over and over again, we've read it many times, the serpent comes into the picture. He comes into the story and he was the craftiest, the shrewdest of all the wild animals. And we know from scripture and particularly the book of Revelation that this serpent is Satan himself. He tempts Eve and he says, you're not going to die. If you eat this fruit, you're not going to die. In fact, you will become like God, knowing good and evil. So she takes and eats of the fruit. She gives some to Adam and he eats of it. And at that moment, they declare their independence from God. Separated from God. Separated from the life-giving power of their creator. Separated from intimacy and love with their with their God. Now, think about taking that fruit and what it represents. It represents redefining good and evil according to human wisdom. That's what Adam and Eve did. And it occurred to me, and I have never thought about it. I have read Genesis 1 through 3 over and over many, many times. And what occurred to me, I believe what the Lord showed me this time, and as he was speaking to me through that scripture, We are presented with the tree of knowledge of good and evil every single day, are we not? We're presented with whether we're going to take that fruit and eat it and redefine good and evil according to our own wisdom, or will we connect with the life-giving power of God to determine what is good and what is evil? Now, if you pay attention to this in your own heart, and in the heart, and if you listen, if you really listen to other people, even Christians, you will be amazed how many times we do re- redefine what is good and what is bad according to our own knowledge. Trust in the Lord with all your heart. Lean not on your own understanding, says Proverbs 3. So I believe that temptation is before us every single day. You know, sin is often defined as Uh, doing something wrong, doing something bad, or thinking something bad, and that certainly is the case. But today I want us to think about sin this way. Sin is not believing God loves us. Sin believing that God is not as good as he says he is. And then I want us to think about sin in, in terms of relationship with each other the damage and destruction it causes to our relationships. It certainly did much destruction for Adam and Eve. We know that once they ate of the fruit, they became aware that they were naked and they became—they were ashamed and they hid from each other and from their God. That's what sin does. It destroys our relationships. And so God was talking to himself, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, the community of the Trinity, talking among themselves. And they said, you know, Man and woman, they, know, they now know good and evil. And what, what they're most concerned about, what God is most concerned about, is if they eat of the tree of life now, they will remain in a permanent state of disobedience. So he, wall- he pushes them away from the Garden of Eden, he blocks it with a mighty angel, and then he sends this flaming sword to block the way to the Tree of Life. The Tree of Life, no longer do we no longer have access at that point in the story to the Tree of Life. It is a major turnaround in the story. Man and woman created perfect and now disobedient to their God and not able to access the Tree of Life. We will be starting a new sermon series in the book of Revelation, specifically chapter two and three, the letters to the seven churches in Asia Minor. John, most people believe the apostle John was the author of the book of Revelation. And in Revelation chapter one, verse nine, he says, he describes himself as a partner in tribulation. He's on the island of Patmos because of the Roman Empire and because of that specific tri- uh, tribulation. The seven churches. So there, we're, what we're going to be called, the, the new sermon series is called Letters to the Churches. Seven different letters to seven different churches in Asia Minor. And the first one will be to the letter, a letter to the Church of Ephesus. All these churches were under heavy persecution through the Roman emperor Domitian. At least that's what most people believe. It was the time of the emperor Domitian. Heavy persecution upon the church. And so Jesus asked uh, the apostle John to write these letters of encouragement and warning to the seven churches. Chapter 1, verse 1 says that this is the revelation of Jesus Christ. That word revelation is from the Greek word apokalypsis. Apocalypse. So it's declaring that this is a particular type of literature, a particular type of Jewish literature known as apocalyptic literature. Symbolic visions. So often we want to take what is written in the book of Revelation as literal, but you have to understand apocalyptic literature. It was all of these symbolic visions that reveal a heavenly perspective on human history with a view of what God will do at the end of all of history. Let me repeat that. There's this kind of symbolic visions all throughout the book of Revelation that reveal a heavenly perspective on human history in light of what God will do at the end of history. And one of the main themes of the book of Revelation is there's this pattern in human history. You see it over and over again. Each human kingdom or nation in the world will eventually become Babylon, and they will have to be resisted. Every single nation on the earth will eventually become Babylon, and they will have to be resisted. And that includes the United States of America. In the middle of the book, you see this strange character this beast and we know from the book of Daniel that the beast is Babylon which is this symbol of all the nations of the world who use their military power and an economic system of greed to subjugate their people and these nation beasts now listen to this carefully these nation beasts demand absolute allegiance absolute loyalty and so you, just, you have to begin to think, where in my, our own society, in this country, is someone de- demanding absolute allegiance? Anyone who demands absolute allegiance apart from Christ is a part of the beast. We, we saw a version of this, did we not, in the Capitol on Wednesday? The far right wing rushing the Capitol building and taking control of it. Now, here's the thing. Now, remember, the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. There's not a doubt in my mind that the people who broke into the Capitol building thought they were doing right. Right, wrong, according to human wisdom. There's not a doubt in my mind. And there were, There. this is the most heartbreaking thing to me. There were flags that say, said Jesus. People declaring the name of Jesus, storming the castle, committing insurrection against their society. This is what happens when the beast gets a hold of our society. It it has been from beginning to end. Every human nation, no exceptions, eventually go the way of the beast. Now, so much of the book of Revelation is about tribulation about suffering, about persecution, and what will the church do in the midst of this persecution? We have a choice in tribulation. Will we compromise or will we remain faithful? In the midst of tribulation and persecution, will we compromise or will we remain faithful? And there's all kinds of ways to compromise, right? There's what I call, and I, haven't made, I didn't make this up, there's a more liberal way to compromise, Love without truth. Accept the ways of the world without ever challenging them according to the truth. There's a more conservative way to compromise truth without love. Focusing on doctrinal purity without the love of people and the love of Jesus Christ in your heart. And then if you're a moderate like me, you're good at compromising on both sides. So there's plenty of ways to compromise, but... What God is calling to us to, especially in this letter, the seven letters to the seven churches is not to compromise, but to remain faithful. So John, the apostle, was taken up into heaven and he sees a picture of Jesus Christ. Eyes flaming like fire, his voice like rushing waters, his mouth, out of his mouth comes this two-edged sword. His face, the face of Christ, shining like the sun in all of its splendor, in all of its fullness. There's Jesus Christ in all of his glory, all of his magnificence. And John falls down as if dead. And so let me read, before we read our scripture in Revelation 2, let me read just a few verses in Revelation 1, 17 through 20. It says, when I saw him, I fell at his feet as though dead. of the seven churches and the seven lampstands are the seven churches. And now let's stand for the reading of the scripture for today from Revelation chapter 2 verses 1 through 7. Let's if you're at home you can stand as well. Let's read together. The word of the Lord. To the angel of the church in Ephesus write, "The words of him who holds the seven stars in his right hand, who walks among the seven golden lampstands. I know your works. Your toil and your patient endurance, and how you cannot bear with those who are evil, but have tested those who call themselves apostles and are not, and found themselves, them to be false. I know you were enduring patiently and bearing up for my name's sake, and you have not grown weary. But I have this against you, that you have abandoned the love you had at first. Remember therefore from where you have fallen, repent, and do the works you did at first. If not, I will come to you and remove your lampstand from its place unless you repent. Yet this is, this you have, you hate the work of the Nicolaitans, which I also hate. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. To the one who conquers, I will grant to eat of the tree of life, which is in the paradise of God. Let me pray. Lord God, I pray that The words of my mouth and the meditation of my heart would be pleasing in your sight, my rock and my redeemer. Grant to me your Holy Spirit that I may speak the words that you have for your people at New Life Church and anyone who else who is listening in on the live stream. Touch each heart, Lord, that these words may not simply be words on a page or words spoken by me, but they may be your words that quicken to our heart and cause us to be more and more like Jesus Christ. I pray this in your name. Amen. You may see the main idea that I have for us today is that victory is achieved through our first love, beholding Jesus as the lamb who was slain. Victory is achieved through our first love, beholding Jesus as the lamb who was slain. And there's this general pattern that most of these letters have. Jesus commends the church for what is good. He challenges them to repent for what is bad, and he offers a reward for their faithfulness. Verse 1 says, To the angel of the church in Ephesus write, The words of him who holds the seven stars in his right hand, who walks among the seven golden lampstands. That word for angel can literally mean an angel, heavenly being, or it can mean a human, a human messenger. And I won't get into all the details for sake of time, But most, many believe that this probably is referring to the pastor of the church in Ephesus and the other seven churches, which makes sense because he's giving this letter to actual people, actual churches, actual pastors. And then here's the thing that I really like. It says that Jesus is walking among the lampstands, which are the churches. Jesus is walking among us always having an intimate knowledge of what is going on in his church. Praise the Lord, praise the Lord. And now just a real quick summary of the city of Ephesus. It's important for us to know. It was one of the greatest cities in the Roman Empire. And at one point it became the capital of all of Asia Minor. It was it was so influential. It was a harbor town, which meant there was commerce and great wealth. And here's the thing that's really important for us to know. One of the great tourist attractions was the Temple of Artemis. That was the Greek goddess. The Romans knew her as Diana. And when this building, this temple was finally built, at the time it was considered one of the eighth wonders of the world. It was that magnificent. It was a tour as attraction, a pilgrimage. It would be very similar to us to go... For Christians, we go to Jerusalem if we have the opportunity to do that and the means. We make a pilgrimage to uh, Jerusalem. Many people made pilgrimage to the Temple of Artemis. And it, there was so much money involved in the temple system that they became banking centers for the Roman Empire. So there's all this kind of money flowing through that temple and through that city. The Temple of Artemis was what they known it, um, known, known as a mystery, uh, mystery religion. A mystery religion in that they combined this, it was a combination of asceticism and sensuality. They used all kinds of a means to affect the emotions of their followers. Drama, acts of purification, processionals, fasting, various liturgies, all meant to conjure up the emotions and work up the emotions of the people who followed the goddess Artemis. So all of that is hanging in the backdrop of this letter to Ephesus. Remember, I said the pattern, the good, the bad, the reward. Let's start with the good. They're commended for their works, their toil, and their patient endurance. They're they're commended for their hard work. And it's a particular type of hard work because it goes on to say that they cannot tolerate evil people. It was the hard work of resisting evil everywhere they saw it. And Roman society was full of all kinds of evil. The temple prostitution, false religions. Ephesus was one of the many centers of the imperial cult, meaning emperor worship. People offering of honors to either a living or a dead emperor. And all of this is going on in Ephesus. And they are commended for standing up against the evil and not compromising to that evil. They test their doctrine. They know what is right and wrong. And it says you even test the apostles who say they're apostles, but they're not. They're false. All these false prophets, all these false apostles, apparently the people of Ephesus knew how to distinguish from right and wrong, good and evil, especially when it came to their leadership or these false leaders who want to infiltrate the church. Apparently, these apostles, false apostles, were attracted by power. They must have seen the power exhibited by apostles like Paul and John, and they wanted a piece of that power. It was a grab for power, and the Ephesians said, no, no, you do not belong here. And then it says, you hate the work of the Nicolaitans, even as Jesus hates the Nicolaitans. We really don't know much about the Nicolaitans. It's only mentioned in, a couple times in the book of Revelation. But we know that it has to be some for, form of heresy. And if it's mentioned again in the letter to the church of Pergamum, which we'll talk about later in a couple weeks, alongside the teaching of Balaam. Well, what did Balaam teach? He, he said it's okay to eat food sacrificed to idols. He taught he was encouraging sexual immorality. So most likely, the Nicolaitans were something along that lines, promoting eating food that's sacrificed to idols and promoting sexual immorality in the church. Now think about that in light of our own nation. Just think for a second of all the sexuality in our culture. Pervasive. It is the water we swim in. It is the air we breathe. You cannot go, almost go a single day, without seeing some kind of sexual immorality on the screen, TV screen, your phone, whatever it may be. And we don't even give it a second thought. Even in the church, it invades the church. Now, this is not a license to be arrogant against people who struggle with sexual immorality. It's not one particular sin, and we we cast, you know, we cast the person struggling with that sin, well, you're completely different. That's not what we're talking about here. But we are talking about people who say that sexual immorality is good. And, you know, just think about sexual purity for a second in our culture. To say that we must be sexually pure, it just sounds so antiquated to people. They look at us like we're nuts. But we must stand up against immorality. We must stand up against any false religion that would want to present itself in the church, just like the people in Ephesus they are commended for their inheritance to doctrinal purity. That is not a bad thing. That kind of perseverance in the midst of all of this evil, it comes at a price. They have stuck to the truth and they have not grown weary. It feels good to be commended by Jesus Christ, doesn't it? It feels good when God, and Jesus says, you did a great job. He's saying, hold up against evil of all kinds, and and we will be commended, like the church in Ephesus. That's the good. The bad, verses 4 through 5. He says, but I have this against you. You have abandoned your first love. You have abandoned your love that you had at first. And if you look at the Greek, we're not exactly sure if that means love for Christ or love for one another. Most likely love for Christ, because that's the first thing that that comes to my mind and other people's minds, commentators' minds, when you think of the first love. But let's let's just think of the love of God and the love of others throughout Scripture. You can never separate them. You can never separate them. 1 John 4.20 says, If someone says, I love God, but hates a fellow believer, that person is a liar. For if we don't love people we can see, How can we say we love God who we don't see? Love of God and love of people all the same, connected together. And this is the great irony of the church of Ephesus. They were commended for not compromising their doctrine. And in the midst of that, Jesus says, you have lost sight of your first love. That is an indictment. You have followed doctrinal purity, but you have lost sight of your first love. That that is amazingly ironic. It appears to be an issue of motivation, doing all the right things for all the wrong reasons. They seem to want doctrinal purity, not out of a love for Jesus, but out of a love for something else. Again, think of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. When it comes to us, and what we were commended for, and what the Ephesians were commended for, sticking up to doctrinal purity, we can never do that out of human wisdom. We can never do it from eating, being tempted to eat of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, deciding what is right and wrong out of our own wisdom. If you do that even with doctrinal purity, not motivated by love, Jesus will say to you, you've lost track of your first love. Knowledge, divorced. From the intimacy of God. Deciding good and evil out of our own human wisdom. Now think of the effect that pursuing doctrinal purity without love has on our relationships. Constantly policing one another for what is true and what is false. According to our definition of true and false. Not according to Jesus's. We already know pursuing what Jesus says is right and wrong in the area of doctrine is what we are to be commended for. No, it's separating ourselves from the love of God. It's doing exactly what Adam and Eve did in the very beginning, separating themselves and being tempted by this fruit, taking a hold of the fruit, and now saying, I know what's good and I know what's evil. I am the judge. I am the Lord. I am the one who decides. Jesus says, you lost track of your first love. And then he goes into what I'm calling the three R's. Remember, repent, return. There's a fourth R, but let me stick with the first three initially. He says, remember. Remember. Remember where you have fallen. Remember the story of all of Scripture. Remember your first love. Remember when you were saved. Let's take just a brief moment of quiet. And what I want to ask you to do is just take a moment to go back to your earliest remembrance of Jesus Christ when you knew he was a savior of sinners and your friend. Remember that. And as we remember that in quiet, Let that ignite, reignite your heart with the memory of your Savior. That's just a few quiet moments to remember our first love. For me, it was in high school. Grew up in the church, never had any interest in God or the scriptures, But in high school, the scriptures came alive. I heard the voice of God in the scriptures for the very first time. It's the most exciting thing you can ever, to hear the voice of God in scripture. And my pastor, Pastor Carl Rosenblum, said to me, well, what's that experience been like for you? I said, it's like, this is how I described it to him. It's like my chest were these big doors and they were closed. (laughs) But now they're open. Now they're open. And he quoted, I'll never forget it. He quoted Revelation 3.20. Look, I stand at the door and knock. If you hear my voice and open the door, I will come in. This is Jesus saying this. And we will share a meal together as friends. That's what I knew in high school. And you all, if you claim the name of Jesus Christ, you all have a version of that story. When you first heard the voice of God speak to you, especially through scripture. Jesus says, remember. But he also says, repent. Repentance has gotten a really bad name. We look at it and we don't often want to do it, but repentance shouldn't be that hard. Well, there's a part of it that's really difficult, but there's a part of it that's easy. It's, It's simply saying, I did wrong and I'm not going to do it anymore. I'm going to go, instead of going this way, I'm going to go this way. Jack Miller, who we, uh, Pastor Larry talked about, the founding pastor of the original New Life Church, used to say, cheer up. You are far worse than you can possibly imagine. But cheer up. God is way more gracious than you can ever imagine. That is what allows us to come to Jesus anytime we want with repentance. I love repentance. I really do. It hasn't been all my life because what happens, We we tend to wallow in our guilt. We tend to beat ourselves up with our own guilt. That's not repentance. That's not what God desires. He just says, stop doing what is wrong. Your spirit is in my heart. I've given you the power to say no, to stand up to evil. Repentance can be that easy because God is faithful and just to forgive these sins. He knows the depth of your sin. You think it's a surprise to him? It's not. He knows intimately your sin, and he died for it. So he says, repent, remember, repent, and then return. You don't see the word return in there, but it says, come back to your initial works that you did in the beginning. Ephesians, come back to your first love. Ephesians, come back to all those good works you were doing, all the things I commended you for, standing up against evil, following doctrinal purity. Do that according to my spirit, come back to me, return to me. And then the fourth R, and this is sobering. If you don't do these first three things, I will come and I will remove your lampstand and you will cease to be a church. I will remove my spirit from you and I will take away my presence if you do not do these things. Now, that's scary. That is amazingly scary. And if I was a young Christian reading that, The first thing that would occur to me is, well, apparently you can lose your salvation. But we know from Scripture that he who began a work in us will carry it to the day of completion because it is not about what we do, primarily. It is about what Jesus did, living a perfect life of obedience for us, dying a death as a perfect sacrifice for our sins. All of that empowers us to be able to repent, to be able to return, to be able to remember that the lampstand of New Life Church will never be removed. It has to be by the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ. It cannot be primarily by what we do. We have to be fueled by what Jesus did, and that will unleash the good works that we are meant to do in his presence. May God never remove the lampstand from New Life Church. Because we will be a people who remember our first love. We will be a people who repent and return to our Lord, to the very first works that we did when we first believed Jesus. Remember how excited you were when you got saved? You wanted to tell everybody. And you were obnoxious doing it, I guarantee it. Because you were so excited. You just wanted to tell everybody, come back to your first reward. Because if all we do all of these things, finally... Finally, we get the reward, says the one who conquers. Or in the NIV, the one who is victorious. I will give you the right to eat of the tree of life. Amazing. What does it mean to be a conqueror? What does it mean to be victorious in Jesus Christ? I know all the war images that come to mind, but what does it really mean When you read the scripture, Jesus says, he that has ears, let him hear. And that reminded me of a couple times in the book of Revelation when John heard specific things, chapter 5, chapter 7. Let me talk about chapter 5, verse 5 through 6. John looks and there's this big scroll, paper wrapped up into a scroll and seven wax seals on it. And there was nobody who could open the scroll. And so, and John just starts weeping because the scroll represents God's knowledge and activity in human history. Nobody could open the scroll. Then one of the 24 elders before the throne of God says to John, stop weeping, look. And what John hears is, look, the Lion of Judah. He says, look, but he hears the Lion of Judah, the Root of David. He hears these words and he turns and he must have thought that he would see Jesus, the victorious king in all of his glory and splendor. But what does he see? He sees a lamb that looked like it was slaughtered. The kingdom of God began with the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ. The cross was the greatest military conquest of all times. But Victory is achieved by following and beholding the Lamb of God who was slain, slaughtered for the sins of the world. There's another part, Revelation 7. John hears, it says, the numbers of the people who were sealed. His people who were sealed completely and perfectly protected by their God. He hears this number, 144,000, which represents, it goes on to say 12,000 from each of the tribe's of Israel. Now, what's that all about? It's a military census. The kings of old would take a census of their people for two purposes: one for taxation and then one for war. They wanted to see how many fighting soldiers they had in the kingdom. So what John is hearing, 144,000 of people who were sealed, he's hearing this military census. And he turns and what he sees, now get this, what he sees is a great multitude of people from every nation, tribe, people and language standing at the throne of God before the Lamb of God. There it is again. It is the army of the Lamb who was slaughtered to achieve victory, victory for himself and his kingdom and victory for us. The only way that we achieve victory in this world is by following the Lamb of God who was slain, slaughtered for our sin. Jesus says a seed must fall to the ground and die. Unless it does, if it doesn't do that, it's just a seed. But if it falls to the ground and dies, it produces this great tree and plant of righteousness. Jesus Christ himself dying, coming again to life, empowering us with his spirit and completely saving us, completely transforming our lives. Amen. This is such a wonderful picture of what we're pursuing at New Life. Right in our vision statement, to be a thriving family in the city. Now get it, We're the broken from all nations, there it is are made alive and whole, finding hope and purpose in Jesus. And it should say, comma, the slain Lamb of God. That's the only way we achieve victory in this world. Completely and utterly different than all the military conquests of all the nations who've become the beasts. We are not to achieve victory that way. We are to follow the Lamb who was slain. So what God is doing at New Life Church as we pursue our vision, we believe the vision that God has given us, he is recreating that army of the Lamb in our church. From every nation, tribe, people, and language. As we used to say in the olden days of new life, many colors, but only one blood, the blood of Jesus Christ, the Lamb of God. <clears throat> we are in only one of the most diverse sections of not only the city, but all the state of Pennsylvania. Can you just, let's just pause for a second. Just think about the privilege of that. A lot of people live in communities where people, everybody looks like themselves. It's okay, no judgment, but that's not where we live. Every day we walk out and we see the United Nations. Every single day we see all the nations in front of us. For those who live in Albany, or come to church in Albany. God is recreating that army of the Lamb right here in this church, in this community. And if you are victorious by following the Lamb, if you are a victor, if you are a conqueror, what does Jesus say? He says, I will give you the right to eat of the tree of life in paradise. Now think of Genesis again. Think of that tree of life being walled off by the flaming sword. That flaming sword pierced the body of Jesus Christ. That is what gives gives you access to the tree of life again. It's an amazing thing. To eat again, we can eat of that now. To eat again means that we can love God with all our heart, soul, mind, and strength, and our neighbor as ourselves because it empowers us as we eat it to do that. The tree of life, God's own life-giving power, his creative energy, and we get to dine on it every time. I think of the Lord's Supper. Every time we eat of the Lord's Supper, it's like dining on the tree of life. The bread, the body, Jesus' body broken for you. The blood, Jesus' blood shed for you. This meal that we ingest in order to understand the power of God that's in our lives. If you want to do an amazing study in Scripture, just study this theme of trees. Just look for trees throughout Scripture. We've already talked about a lot of them, tree of life, the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, all the fruit trees in the garden, the burning bush. There's another tree. 1 Peter 2, 24 says, "He He himself bore our sins in his body on the tree that we might die to sin and live to righteousness by his wounds, you have been healed. The tree, Deuteronomy says, anyone who hangs on a tree is cursed. Jesus takes this curse by hanging on the tree of the cross. That tree of death now becomes a tree of life. Amen. Because he bore our sins. The righteous one bore our sins and gives us access to the tree of life. And here's the thing. To know scripture is to know that everything points to Jesus Christ. Everything finds its culmination in the person of Christ. Jesus becomes the tree of life. He says, I am the vine and you are my branches. You must abide in me. And if you abide in me, you know I abide in the Father. You are one with the Father. Jesus as the tree of life. It's amazing. Trust him and be transformed by his life by being in his presence. You know, we, we preach, and every time I preach, it seems like there's this hard message of repentance. And I'm, I just want to end this uh, sermon with grace. We can talk about all the things you need to do, and you need to do them. You need to repent of the things that you're doing that might be evil or your temptations towards evil. But everything ends with the heart of grace. Everything ends with Jesus' heart of grace towards us. And I'm always particularly sensitive to people who have sensitive consciences. People who say, you know, God doesn't love me. And they can point all the sin they do in their lives. Here's the reason why God doesn't love me. And I'm telling you, it's a lie from the pit of hell. God loves you. He knows your sin and he will take your sin again and again. You come to him in repentance. He will carry that sin. He will remove that burden and he will grant to you freedom and life because he is the tree of life. Rest in the tree of life. So I just want to end by thinking of the tree of life. Just think of this. Think of the biggest oak tree you've ever seen in all of your life. And it's there in paradise. Paradise is described not just as a garden, but at the end time, it's a city that descends from heaven to earth. And there's the tree of life right in the midst of the city. We get to eat of it. Just think of that tree and think of just basking in the sun. And we know in the the new heavens and new earth, Jesus is that sun. He is the light of the new creation. And we're basking in, in the sun of the glory of the son of God. And then we come to the tree of life, and we just decide to rest in its shade. And then we see Jesus coming to us. And unlike John, we don't fall down as if dead, because this is the end of all times. And what we, we, we're looking at Jesus, and He's smiling at us. Doesn't say a word. And he just sits right down next to us, puts his arm around us, and draws us close. And you can feel the life-giving power of this tree of life. It warms your heart. And then you look to the left, and you look to the right, and you notice there are other people sitting underneath this tree as well. All members of your family, the body of Christ all following the Lamb of God, all nations of the world. You see your brothers and sisters. You see your black friends. You see your white friends. You see your Latino friends that you knew. You see your Asian friends, your Native American friends, all people, all tongues, all nations, all tribes, all just resting in the shade of the tree of life with Jesus, the tree of life all nations victorious in Jesus Christ, the Lamb of God, who takes away the sins of the world, the tree of life. God really loves you. Why would he do all of this if it weren't true? As many pastors I know, he really likes you too. He's not just putting up with you. He loves you with an eternal love. Come to to Jesus. Dine on the fruit of the tree of life and be transformed. Live that reality right now. Amen. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, Father, Son, Holy Spirit, Lord Jesus, we honor you as the Lamb of God who was slain for the sins of the world. Thank you that you are the tree of life. That we can rest in your shade anytime we want. And you give us the fruit. The fruit of your own sacrifice. The bread, which is the body. The cup, which is your blood. And we dine and we find peace. Eternal peace. Put this upon your people. Put that peace upon your people this day that we might be the army of the land. There's still work to be done until the end of all times. May we be the army that follows the Lamb of God. Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. To to you, Jesus, be all the glory. Amen and amen.